You are listening to a production of the Toe Network. This is the Uncommon Cast RX number 269, Disaster Phoenix and the Bird Father. I'm Aleph. And I'm Sono, and this is Common Rider Saber, episode 37, The Future Shall Be Changed, But By Who? And episode 38, Reigning Over All Sacred Swords, The Sword of the Cosmos. Boy, it's been a minute since we had one of those titles, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. Man, that one almost went on to a second line. <laughs> that one cut it very close. Our writer for 37 is Mori Nobuhiro, and for 38 is Uchida Hiroki. Our director for 37 is Kashiwagi Hiroki, and for 38 is Shibasaki Takayuki. Well, you know, that makes sense, because you want Shibasaki Takayuki for some of these big action things, don't you? Yeah, you really do. Also, hey, before we get going, I just want to throw out how today I found out that on top of being an absurdly handsome and charismatic actor, Mitsuru Karahashi, uh, who is Kento's dad in this, and more popularly Fuujuzo in Shinkenger, is also a designer and illustrator. Uh, he's He's got like a whole website, it's tokyo-village.net, where you can buy like where you can see some of his other illustrations. But I just wanted to note it specifically here, because all of the, the constellation designs on Q-Ranger, yeah, that's all him. Really? Yeah. Dang, because I was always, like, I always thought they were super cool. And they were done by Fuajuzo. Yeah, like the like the images that are on the Q-Tamas? Yeah. Well, I think... Dang! I, it, yeah, I think it's the images, or, or like when they'd superimpose, like... You know, here is a picture of the constellation, and it would have, like, the, the image that is superimposed. Mm-hmm. I think that's the same one that's on the Q-Tamas. I'm not 100%. I don't have a Q-Tama, and it's been a while since I watched. But yeah, that's him. Dang! This man is beautiful and talented! Yeah, it's not fair, frankly. <laughs> Which, like, I already believed he was beautiful and talented, but it's in more ways than I had realized. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. I think that was just a cool thing to open the show with, because I was trying to put it into, trying to find an organic place to put it into the notes, and I couldn't find one. It's just like, hey, let's just, let's just open up the show by giving you some information you might not have known. Yeah. Um, but we're going to go from that high note into some lower stuff with, with our, you know, nitpicks with these episodes, because that's uh, how we do. Uh, so I want you start us off. Okay, so in the notes I wrote that this isn't really a big problem, but I I suppose it became one as I continued writing about it. Um, But after the opening theme in 37, Toma walks in and Daishinji just declares that, oh, people aren't going to automatically fight to the death because a big hologram of a man in the sky told them to, which, fair. I mean, like, some people might want to, but I feel like society on the whole would probably at least be like, But why would we do that and maybe stop anyone who tried? My problem with this happening is that in 36, right after Logos declares that, like, fight to the death and whoever survives gets to live in this new world, our entire hero team is panicking because they seem to totally believe that people are just gonna do that. And I'm pretty sure that the only thing they've done since then is go ask Durandal and Reika to join them and get rejected, and Daishinji and Ogami went to find Ren and didn't find him. So where is this change of heart coming from? 
is it just clarity from getting 10 minutes to sit and think about this? Because it just, it feels like a very sharp left turn into dissolving what is basically the main tension at the moment. Yeah, because, like, look, I I do want to say that I appreciate that we're, we're taking the time to talk about how, hey, if you saw a giant floating guy in the sky and he's like, hey, kill each other for my amusement, yeah, you would probably be like, what? Why? What, what's going on? Am I being punked? Like, you, there would be confusion before there would be murder. Some people would just definitely jump to murder, I know, but I think, by and large, the, the biggest thing would be, what? And, like, I realize that they're trying to show that Logos is doing some kind of fascism and it's bad and his, his understanding of humanity is flawed, but... It's it's such a weird beat because they set up this big thing and then it's just it's nothing. Yeah, I mean, like I would be more fine if in thirty six they were like, okay, well, people are not just gonna start murdering each other in the streets. Like he has a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature. Let's just focus on getting this dude under control. But they ended the last episode on one message, and then started this one on a completely different message. And I know we've talked a lot about this show having kind of tone and consistency issues, but this is a little extreme even for Saber. Yeah, it's wild. Especially since, like, honestly, the th- the real thing to do would be, like, you know, show people around the world reacting to the face, and it's just like, why? No. Ugh. And, like, then you don't even have to have that beat where they say it. You just, like, you see people be like, why would, no, I don't want to do that. That's a stupid world. Who is this? Who is this Joker? Who is this clown? Because that means he is both a clown, but he is not even a particularly well-known clown. Yeah, like you said, it just, it's they tried to go all big, and then when you start the next episode, it's just, it's not even a wet fart. I'm also curious as to why no one in this show is making a distinction between the words sacrifice and disappear. Kento has to sacrifice himself, or Toma will disappear. Those are the options that Kento is presented with and presents to everyone else. And Kento would obviously die, but Toma wouldn't. The way that Yuri has explained what disappear means, it sounds like Toma would just end up in Wonderworld. Which is a thing that has stopped literally not a single other person from Wonderworld with interacting with the human world. Yeah, it's just, oh no, I'm trapped over here, I, I sleep in a different bed, that's so terrible, but I still pop by to say hi on the reg. What a horrible fate, oh no! Like, it's it's such a non-nothing thing. Like, I know that they said whoever saves Wonderworld becomes its guardian, but, like, that's Tassel's job right now, and I know he hasn't explicitly walked into the entirety of the human world, but I've never seen any real indication that anything was stopping him beyond the fact that he just didn't feel like it and had no reason to. 
Because he does come to the human world to confront Master Logos, who then technically killed him, but even that hasn't stopped him. He's still kind of formlessly doing his thing until he can put himself back together. So the idea of that job being thrust upon Toma doesn't quite register to me as a point of tension because Tassel and Luna and, like, the Megid and maybe Yuri... Like, just keep showing up. Yuri has been going back and forth for months. He's been to Tassel's house. And I just, I get it not at all. Not to mention, like, I have to say, it feels like Toma taking on Tassel's role is kind of what they're building to anyway. Given that if, heaven forfend, something happens to Tassel, which I don't want to happen, I love that guy. But if he's gone, that means they need a different narrator. And Toma is a novelist. It's pretty fair to assume that they might be setting us up toward going there as it is, which would honestly kind of make this beat another weird wet fart. And, like, it's not even a cul-de-sac, because a cul-de-sac is when you just stay in an area and just loop and loop and loop. This is just... I don't know what to call it. I don't even know what to... It's, it's just a thing where they're like, okay... Why would he disappear? He'd just be in Wonderworld. Everyone else is coming and going from Wonderworld all the dang time. Yeah, it's the, a big a big chunk of the plot is we have literally connected the human world to Wonderworld. Yeah, that's <laughs> that is a major part of what's going on, isn't it? Ah, oh. and like, look, I, I I touched on this a second ago. This is kind of a related thing. And, and I imagine it's to do with budget and how there's currently a global pandemic thing still going on, so for heaven's sake, everyone keep masking, keep socially distancing. I know it's a pain, I know it sucks, but let's, let's, keep, let's keep that up. Uh, but for a show that's doing its level best to advance a more humanist version of Ryder, it does feel very notable how often humanity at large is just kind of this off-screen thing that's just, you know, it's over there, it's not really involved in our big plots. It's, it's a rhetorical device more than a world of other people with things that they're doing. And like, look, I, I get that's why they were setting up the whole, yeah, and, and now they're going to turn people into Megiddo. And like, yeah, that's that's a smart idea, but with how hard that side of things got dropped, and given the lack of anything even threatening to pay off Logos's now everyone murder for my amusement, it just sort of makes the stakes outside of Toma's immediate circle of friends feel kind of ephemeral to me. Like it's not there. Like is the problem of trying to make. I think it's the problem, rather, of trying to make a story that is about the morals of and relationships within an organization and, and trying to make it into a story that affects the whole world, maybe? Yeah, because I feel like this is a thing they should have planned for because, I mean, the pandemic was already happening. Yeah. You knew that was going on. So if they had just cut the turn people into Megiddo plot and just kept having kind of weird repercussions of humans now being aware of the Wonder World and maybe just wandering into it instead of being kidnapped and turned into monsters, 
is some of them just go there. Some of them just walk into Narnia and maybe don't come back. And, or even get in the crossfire as the two overlap during fights the way they did early on. Like, that would have been more than enough. Absolutely. But they just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, they they had an opportunity to make the whole world feel real, and they just, they never quite did it. Yeah. Um, so this is maybe the smallest of my issues among these two episodes. Um, because it really means nothing in the long run. I'm not sure why they kind of gave May the romance harp when Yuri was like, hey, I need you to come do a thing with me. Because they've pretty much solidified her and Rintaro as a thing. And it's not like they're going to, like, change that or have her, like, suddenly have a crush on Yuri. Because he's just been around and she mostly seems frustrated by him. If not begrudgingly accepting of his presence. So it was just a really weird gag that didn't land. Yeah, like, I think it, at best they're trying to to play up how she's she's very happy that someone else is acknowledging how useful she could be but like i don't know it doesn't it doesn't hit and look even if even if we want to take it as a romantic thing like i'm not denying yuri's a handsome guy and and i know a lot of people out there who like a rare pair and that's fine but like you're saying sono it it doesn't it doesn't track yeah it just it it doesn't land with the way like look if that's your rare pair that's fine but as someone with a lot of rare pairs you don't go into rare pairs looking for like textual evidence of them yeah that's not the i i always kind of got the impression that was far from the point yeah it's it's generally either these two people have like an interesting personality that i think will have some like interesting dynamics or these two people are both hot, and I want to see them kiss. Which, hey, fair. Yeah, and, like, look, both of those are valid. It's fine. It's just, this this feels like a thing where the show wanted to kind of push that weird romantic moment, because, like, they have, it's basically Yuri being like, hey, no, I need you for something, like, I, I've got something else for you to do. And she's like, okay, what? And then he's like, I need you. And I'm like, and they do the harp. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. This is this is very counter to not only the established thing with her and Rintaro, but also her dynamic with Yuri. And also Yuri's everything. Yeah, Yuri's whole dynamic with his existence in this show. But yeah. So rolling into, like, again, it's the smallest problem because it literally goes nowhere. It's just a weird moment that didn't land for me. But back to, like, an actual problem, I really wasn't into Kento's conversation with his dad. Honestly, Sono, that's, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, like, it's fine on the surface, and it's this nice emotional resolution to this open wound that Kento was bleeding from at the beginning of the show. It was sweet for him to have this moment where his dad apologizes for not being there and hugs him and does the hair thing and having the two of them laughing about how much Kento has grown and that now he's taller than him. Like, that was a really nice moment for Kento. 
my problem comes from the fact that in getting through to Kento and getting him to go back to the team, I don't feel like Hayato really said anything different from anyone else who tried to reach out to Kento. Um, especially Sophia, like, five minutes before that. Mm. But, like, Toma and Rintaro have been saying that they believed in Kento this whole time and were open to listening to him and what he was going through and to just find a way to make things work. And Sophia basically said a condensed version of what Hayato tells Kento. And he just, like, walked away from her and was immediately... Like, I, I think there's maybe a scene between it, but if it, you go, like, the real time for Kento, I think was immediately brought into this moment with his dad after he walked away from Sophia. Yeah, I think that, yeah, sounds about right. Like, I think he walks away from her and you see the bird and him, like, flash into another place and then they cut to something else and cut back to him with his dad. Mm. So why did they even have Sophia go and talk to him? Right? It's just... Like, I... I, I know that as, as a larger motif for Kento, his feelings regarding his father are complicated and raw, and maybe in some way getting closure on those feelings helped Kento move forward in a way he hadn't been able to, but there was nothing that really indicated that. I didn't get enough of a sense of that from their interaction because Hayato's return was so sudden and really did not predicate on anything at all. It just happened and was almost not foreshadowed at all. Like, Kento hasn't thought about his dad in, like, 25 episodes. He literally hasn't thought about his dad since he picked up his dad's sword. Yeah, and I think that's it right there. It should feel a big like a big thing, but it doesn't. Because while I... I look, I understand what we're meant to understand about what's going on here. I, I get what's going on on paper, but, like, I don't feel the catharsis. They haven't been backing it up. When when uh, Hayato comes back from the... Or rather, when, when Kento comes back from the dark, it's nothing to do with his dad. It's It's just him, he survived, he went a little crazy, he's back now, boom. And his dad just sort of becomes this thing that gets left aside. So when it comes back, it's hard to get into it. And that sucks because I want to like it. I really do. I've said before how much I want to know more about this dude with his big smile. This dude who plainly loves his son so much. And despite having, like, tried to kill most of his friends. Like, honestly, they've all and all we have of Hayato for most of the show is him is just this one shot of him grinning like you know just grinning like a big happy proud dad ruffling his son's hair and and we've we've seen that moment and it's been enough to carry his characterization through the first part of the show and this was their chance to really land it you know they could have closed that circle and while I'm going to say some nice stuff about that moment later on in this episode, it does suck that because they didn't do anything in the interim, like you said, it's been 25 episodes <laughs> or so. Even if he needed to hear all of this same stuff from his dad, we don't hear anything new. Kento doesn't hear anything new, he just hears it from a different person. And 
Like, if there would have been a moment where his dad just, like, pulls him aside and just says, hey, didn't need me to say all of this. You don't need to hang on to me. I'm okay. You can move on from me. Or, or something like that. Because, look, Kento's already... He's doing that reconciliation with the father, Joseph Campbell tip. And, you know, he's, he's doing his hero's journey. He's at his death, his resurrection. He's come back from the underworld, whatever. Let him have that beat where Papa Deer points out that Kento's main flaw has been that he spent this entire run of the show trying to live for other people, for his dad, for Toma, etc., 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 when what he needs is to live for himself. Like, hey, son, I love you. I'm dead. I'm, I'm beyond anything you need to worry about. Live for you. I want you to be happy. That's all I want, because I'm your dad. Like, that would have been a much better moment. And I'm also not sure how I feel about Hayato just maybe being alive now? <laughs> right? And retaking Caliber? Like, is, is he just fine? Can he come and go as he pleases as this bird? Kind of feels that way, and back to an earlier point, it does make Toma possibly having disappeared back in that moment feel kind of like, oh well. Because <laughs> this dude was dead, right? Yeah, he, he literally died and says like, oh yeah, Tassel decided I shouldn't be dead though. Yeah, because you know, Tassel's the narrator narrators can do that but still like i like the guy but the the show doesn't need any more wind taken out of its sails and that is that's a real good way to take the to just defang death which is a problem when you like oh no he might die like is is the stakes of like half the conflict and it's just i feel like it may have been more satisfying for kento to have that final moment with him, that big talk in that liminal space, mm. the way that Takir did when he got boost from his father. Because his dad doesn't come back after that. Like, Takir has kind of memories and visions of him a couple of times, I think. Yeah. But he doesn't come back. He's gone after that. He's he's dead for real reals. And I think it would have been more satisfying if it had been that moment for Kento where he gets to make peace with this kind of hole in his heart regarding his father and then move on. And then pick up his father's broken legacy to rehabilitate it and pass Espada on. Maybe to May. Give May a sword. Give May a sword, you absolute cowards. It's wild because she's there at that big moment where everyone comes to fight. And then Hayato steps in and takes back his sword, which didn't really mean anything to me because he's done almost nothing in the show. Like, if he had been the caliber from the first, like, quarter of this show instead of Daichi and, like, you know, he had had, he had, had that moment with Toma where at the end he Toma's like hey i i'm relying on your son you need to rely on us and he's like man i am sorry i dragged you into this i trust you to move forward and protect everyone from this thing that i couldn't and then tassel had decided because he had redeemed himself in that moment 
to save his soul so he could have closure with his son, I think that would work better. And him retaking his sword from that would be a moment of atoning for the way he destroyed Caliber and now he's going to rebuild it. And him getting to be part of this and move forward would mean something um, because he would be a part of the conflict. But as it stands, I don't have an attachment to this guy as a swordsman. I don't have attachment to him as Hayato. I just have attachment to him as, oh, it's the actor who played Fuwajuzo and Musashi, and I like him. Yeah, I mean, and that sucks. Because, like, look, I, I'm not saying it sucks that, you know, he was Fuwajuzo. Because, um, yo, have y'all seen Shinkenger? You should see Shinkenger. <laughs> Fujuso's amazing. But it just it's one of those things where if, as I suspect, Caliber had to be that other dude for availability reasons. Cause like, I don't know, maybe maybe he was busy being in something else. I don't know. Maybe he's got maybe he just had an art show that day and they just had to recast. I don't know. Because mostly that would feel better for this moment, because as it stands, it just feels like the what was the name of the other dude the other caliber that guy it just feels like it was a dumb twist for the sake of having a twist because like oh you thought it was gonna be his dad but no it was this other guy it's like well i don't care about this other guy (laughs) i don't know what his deal was except he used to be saber and uh it just it would have been a powerful moment and we could have seen his good intentions and tragic end fall away and he can just be this guy but, you know, if wishes were horses and all, it's... Uh. Yeah, um, so the the last thing that I have a problem with is I am not super fond of the way that Toma lectured Bato. Yeah, that's no kidding. Because, like, look, you know, fair dues, I think we both understand what the point of the scene was, but boy, that was not a great speech. <laughs> Yeah, the fact that Toma starts it off with it doesn't matter how and why your life was twisted and this is all on you. Like, dude, he's not like this for funsies. His best friend murdered his wife and kids and he has no, even now, has no real explanation as to why. And then, in response to that, his other best friend threw him in the void for a few thousand years instead of trying to help him grieve. Like, I feel like those facts kind of matter a lot. Yeah. And then at the end of the speech, he's like, you're just running away. And I'm like, no. No, he didn't run away from his problems. Yuri locked him away. He never got a choice in any of this. Yeah. He's had a lot of forces working on him, and to ask someone to just not be effective, affected, rather, by massive life-shaping events is... I mean, it's garbage. It's garbage of the sort you get in that bit of Ghost, where they're like, Hey, look, you have to understand, appreciate, and forgive your violent, abusive parents. When... No, you don't. <laughs> no. Yeah, and I, I also don't think you have to forgive the dude who murdered your family for, again, a reason 
that we don't know. It was the guy with Caliber, mm. so maybe Caliber did to him what it did to Kento, and he did some terrible things. And yes, Bato does murder him for yeah. that, which is not exactly an appropriate response, but at the time but period you know, you, they lived in, you get it. <laughs> I feel like that is really the response that you get at that point. They didn't have a modern justice system. Which, you know, I'm not saying the modern justice system is flawless, but... But at least we, They, they were large, living we several thousand years ago. <laughs> they were living several thousand years ago. If you murdered someone, if you don't get away with it, pretty much what happens is the person murders you in return. And Yuri, instead of, you know, pulling him away from that, maybe just sealing the sword instead of him... And then helping him grieve was like, nah, I'm just gonna throw him in there and let them lock myself in Avalon. And I'm like, Yuri, that- I don't know, I feel like no one was making healthy choices in this decision. Yeah, no, I don't think so. The bigger picture of what Toma is saying, I'm fine with. Because yes, this dude let his grief become anger, and then, like, his grief over his family turn into anger at one person- which he then projected onto literally everyone on the face of the earth and lashing out at them. And that's not good or productive or healthy. Yeah, that I'm part not, is... I'm not absolving him of his bad decisions. Yeah, that part of the call-out is more than fair. And examining that premise of grief from lost love turning into anger and hate, that's literally how I got into Kamen Rider. Oh. The way they did that in Kamen Rider Double with Shroud and Terui was excellent. It was perfect. And I'd point at Hasegawa and say he's right there, but he's then literally written this exact scenario twice since. One, still in regards to Double. And it's gotten worse every time he's done it, so at least this time, like, I'm not adding a third one to the stack. Well, that's nice, yeah. But I'm fine... With Toma saying that Bato let himself fall into this darkness and didn't try to overcome it. But at least acknowledge the fact that how he got there was entirely out of his control. And also, hey Toma, you know that. Like, this this whole discussion is predicated on Toma knowing where this dude is coming from, and he's still being like this, and that sucks. Yeah. Because I, I had to stop and question him, like, does Toma actually know what happened? Yeah, it was pretty And he sure. does. Yuri explained it. Though I do love that Bato's response to being lectured by Toma was basically, shut up, I don't care about your opinions of my life. You weren't there. And that really all Bato seems to want is to be able to die and be at peace with the souls of his loved ones instead of having to live in this eternal grief and anger over their death. And he's been denied that by the very nature of being who he is. I'm like, that's a great response. How is, how is this dude from a movie with no plot possibly the best written character in this show? On a narrative level. I mean, that's that's a very good question. But I guess because there was no plot in the movie, they were just free to like, you know, we have we have kind of a, a thematic hole. Let's let's use him for that. Yeah. Duh. And it like it is frustrating because I think more than anything, we don't see Toma learn from this from that moment where he says, 
yeah, you don't get to have opinions about my life. Like, I get where Toma could be coming from. We could, but at the same time, like, Toma needs to ha show that he has the understanding to just, okay, yeah, I get that I was wrong in my approach to this, but also the bigger point stands that you can't just go around killing people. Because, <laughs> like, I'd love to see a scene where Toma apologizes for just writing off his whole, again, pretty awful existence, because admitting that you're wrong or that you didn't think of whatever aspect is part of being the good guy. But instead, it just comes off like this really thin, gruel moralizing. And again... Yeah, there's... No, just, no, go on. There's... Sorry, there's... A level to this that I think we could have gotten rid of Master Logos mm. at maybe episode, like, 30 and made Bato kind of this bigger third-act villain and maybe oh, yeah. had a period of time of Toma grappling with the fact that, you know, he, he just wrote this guy off as another bad dude and didn't think about the larger implications of his life. Um, not to really spin out, but uh, I'm watching Ultraman Z, nice. which is very good show. But there is a chunk in the middle of the show where the the dude who Ultraman Z is is kind of living in they, it's it's one of the Ultramans where they both die and then fuse in order to not die. I love that. Yeah. And we had already found out that this kid, Haruki, um, he kind of had some trauma over losing his dad when a kaiju attacked when he was a little kid. And his entire reason for, like, being with this, like, alien defense force or this, like, kaiju defense force is that he wants to help people and save lives. And they, they reach a point where he's fighting this kaiju... And he then, he beats, he kills one of them, and there's another one, and he's fighting it, and then he sees that they had an egg. And that the entire reason these two kaiju are attacking is because they are trying to protect their egg. And for, like, three episodes, he cannot kill a kaiju. Yeah, he, I mean... He fails several times because he hesitates. Because he did not think about the bigger picture of why these kaiju were attacking. Man, that's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> Which, it feels a little weird that it took this long because early in the show they say that they've got these kind of heat readings from a lot of kaiju that are, like, dormant. And a lot of them are woken up by, like, construction. And I'm like, did y'all just never publicly tell people where all the kaiju are? Yeah, that seems like a pretty, um, yeah. Yeah, but even still, like, he has three or four episodes where he just cannot fight. He'll he'll fight, and he'll get to the end of it, and he's not able to beat the kaiju because he doesn't know what they're fighting for, and he doesn't want to kill some a, essentially a wild animal that is just trying to protect itself. Man, that's beautiful. I, sorry, I'm just it's, over here like, I love that. It's gorgeous, and honestly, it, it resolves with him kind of accidentally time-traveling, and his dad gives a very Hino-Agey speech of, um, you can, you just have to on only focus on what you're able to do, and I, I actually really like what his dad says more than 
what Ag said in O's. I've I've talked before about kind of my problems with Hino Ag's philosophy. No, that's fair. Um, within the groundwork of O's, but here it's his his dad was a firefighter, and he goes to his dad, and he's like, "What if you weren't able to save someone, or what if in trying to save someone you hurt someone else?" And he's like, "Well." I have to just do what I can to save people, and if those things happen, I will just never forget about who I wasn't able to save or who ended up hurt, and I will carry that with me and learn from it. And I'm like, damn. And that kind of gives him the resolve to go forward and just do what he can to keep protecting people. Yeah, that's great. It's amazing, and to bring it back, like, I wish Toma had been like, I understand the pain that you're in, but I have to stop you because I can't let you hurt other people. Which, like, that's the sort of thing I'm always about. And I feel like it wanted to be that. Yeah, it really did. But having Toma so blatantly dismiss... The fact that this man's family was murdered and then he was sealed away instead of his friend reaching out to help him, it just, it doesn't land. No, it really doesn't. And Because again, like, look, I, I feel like we're both on the same page of not saying we have to forgive Bato for, for all the stuff he's doing. No, we don't and we shouldn't because his entire thing was... I am sad, so I want to murder everyone, and, like, buddy, that's not how that's you not respond how to that. Works. Yeah. But, like, it's... The the whole thing of, like, it's your fault you're sad just because your loved ones are dead and you were locked in a book where all you could do for a thousand years was reflect on how your loved ones are sad, are dead and your friends betrayed you. And and it's all you on you because you dealt with it in the least healthy way possible. Like... That's that's just not a great look for our heroes, and like, look, yeah. you you bring up you know you bringing up uh, Hino Eiji. Um, the thing I felt like it was going for is uh, the impotent rage Godai has around honestly a pretty similar, like numerically similar point in Kuga, where he's talking to Ichijo about the porcupine grongi, yeah, and how it's just being this vile evil sadist, and he's just clenching his and wondering aloud why things like the Grongi even exist. And it's honestly, like, one of his darkest moments in the whole series, because, you know, he's he's a pacifist. He's a good dude. He's just a guy who tries to help. And now he's been fighting these these awful monsters for better part of a year. And and for, for the longest time, he's like, I don't know why they're such vicious monsters. And this is the first one that's communicating. And what's it communicating? Hey, what's up? I'm just going to kill teenagers. <laughs> I'm going to let you know that I'm going to do it too so your last week alive can be spent in complete misery. Like, wow, that's terrible. Yeah, like that guy sucked. Yeah, and when when Godai just flips his lid and just wrecks that dude because, like, you understand it because... This guy has been the antithesis of everything Godai's about. But, like, we're, they're going for those moments for that kind of feeling. Like, Toma's speech feels like it's supposed to be 
why are you even here? What are you even for? But it's not. It's it's just... It isn't Toma admitting to feeling helpless in this roundabout way. It's not Toma talking about where he's at. Or, or even reflecting on, like, who are these other people we've fought before, and, and how is he... Where, where does Bato sit in relation to that? It's just... He's just lecturing Bato, and again, while Bato definitely deserves some words, like, that, those just ain't the words he deserves. Yeah. Because if it was just, hey man, you suck and you're hurting people, and you, again, like, if it had been, hey, I feel for you, I see how you got there, or, like you said, you're hurting people, I have to stop you. Like, this wouldn't be a problem if that's what it was. Anyway. But it's not. No, it really isn't. Let's... Boy, I could spin out on, on the, the problems of that for so long. Anyway, let's let's move on, though, because I think that's basically it for, this, for the problems and nitpicks, you know? Yeah, and we do have plenty of good stuff to talk about. Yeah, well, Sonos, start us off. We'll talk about some good stuff. Okay, so I feel like this is actually something that should be under bad things, but I I was kind of delighted by it. Because there's something about Durandal going, y'all are traitors and we can't associate with you, as if their status as traitors wasn't decided by the dude who, by his own admission, is not fit to lead the guild, and then orchestrated by his sister. <laughs> Little things. Like, we talked about this a bit last time, but with Durandal, just facts are facts, and he is incapable of nuance. Like, the guy may not have a lot of personality, but they are really consistent with what is there. Yeah, they really are. And and I have to say, it's a lot of fun. Because his, his alignment seems to be lawful frustrating, and it's really nice to see him playing into it. Uh, so as much as I kind of don't see the point of why Sophia tried to, like, get through to Kento, I do like that she's she does, like, kid... Please don't be stupid. Please. And Kento just shakes his head and walks away like, I gotta go be stupid, though. <laughs> and you know, the whole time, I confess, I, I kept wondering if if Sophia was gonna end up being the false Sophia. But it, it, she wasn't. I just, I keep wondering if we're ever gonna come back to that, because that seems like a thing you, you can't really dip on. Yeah, like, at this point, I really don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up totally forgotten, or maybe shoved into a movie. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but Kento is reaching the point of one of my absolute favorite character tropes of angsty idiot doesn't realize he's in a shonen adventure show, regardless of the fact that he is the protagonist of a shonen adventure show. Because uh, I feel like while it has been dragged on far too long and not enough has been done to make us really feel like Kento can't see the forest for the trees, I am a sucker for this kind of thing. And I do love when a character is like, no, I have to make this tragic, realistic choice when everyone else is like, no, buddy, just punching it with friendship will solve the problem. Yeah, and look, that's because that is a lot of fun. And honestly, seeing the kid dedicated to his gothitude in the face of all of this technicolor, like, it's fun. I like that. It's just 
come on, dude. Look around you. Yeah. Um, I really adore Bato just half-ignoring Logos's like, mania, and just kind of flopping and sprawling out on the floor of what has always seemed to be this very sacred place, and just being like, yeah, okay, buddy, call me when something good is going on. <laughs> Honestly, like, Bato's apparent realization of the show he's in, and the role he's playing, like, that's so much fun for me, because Kento doesn't realize it, Bato definitely does. Oh, yes. Though at the same time, a part of me wonders how much of his role in the original plan, if there was such a thing, which is a bold assumption, um, I wonder how much of his role was going to be filled by disaster, because just laying on the ground is like, oh, let me know when something cool is happening. That feels like a very disaster thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it's literally what he did when Ren was fighting Reika. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's just... What's... I guess, I guess it's just... If the best show... Or rather, if the best suit in the show can't be there, they just gotta put the the one for the guy in the second best suit in the show. Because the best looking suit in the show, like you said, he's just hanging out with Ren. Um, so this is a very small detail, but I adore that of all of the cast, of every of every swordsman, Yuri is the one wearing the pin that May made for him on his cloak. He's the only member of the cast to be displaying it prominently. And, like, he's always showing it off and very proud of it. And I think it's just very cute that, especially in this storyline about this friend that he lost he is now very prominently displaying this symbol of i have found my people again he's just he's a wonderful dingus like that i just i love what a complete nerd he is he's just he so, is a little dingus and i love him yeah he's just so earnest and and i respond well to that um i also speaking of disaster I love him just egging Ren on. I still can't tell if he's trying to help by getting Ren fired up, or if he's trying to run this kid into the ground, but I love whatever his plan is, and how whatever he is trying to do, it keeps backfiring, because Ren just keeps running off to do kind of whatever he wants, and every time it happens, disaster is just like, oh god, why is... No, this is not what I wanted. <laughs> Look, like, it's it's very early Deno energy. Honestly, just the first episode of Deno. You know, when Momotaros is trying to figure out what Ryotaro wants, when the kid is kind of an empty shell at that point. But, you know, it's it's that, but evil. That's what Disaster's up to. He's just like, come on, what do you want? Nothing. <laughs> just give me a wish. No, I don't have any. Come on! Don't you want to fight? Not at the moment. Ah! There is a part of me that thinks that Disaster is genuinely trying to help Ren, but because he's also from a very busted-up toxic system, he can't just say what he wants to say in a way that is helpful, so Ren is constantly misinterpreting because he's dumb and can't grasp that... Hero all heroism is is making the world better, 
because he is also from a very dumb, busted-up system. Yeah. Put bad ideas in his head? <laughs> no, but if someone else doesn't lose, how do I know that I won? Like, it's just... Oh, that poor dumb kid. That truly is Ren's horrible brain. Um, but I love that Toma then attempts to fight Ren in order to understand him through his sword, the way that has worked with everyone else. That, you know, they push each other to their limits and suddenly they understand each other. But Ren is only capable in thinking of terms of the one who is stronger will win and that's who is right. So he can't put any emotions into his sword. So even after fighting Toma, he's still very uncertain and confused about who he is and why he's fighting. Yeah. Like, even as Toma then lays it out and tries to contextualize it through Kento, who, as far as the flashbacks we've seen are concerned, seems to have truly done his best to balance this kid out, and it just didn't take. <laughs> no, it did not, yeah. And Ren just can't grasp the idea of fighting for something instead of just fighting. Yeah, though I will say, it's nice that they have these opportunities to try and explain the show's views on things like this to Ren, even if it does rely on Ren being kind of frustrating because somehow the most shonen protagonist-y guy in the whole show has also yet to realize the genre he's in. Because, like, look, this is a shonen, pro this is a shonen show filled with so many shonen protagonists he's literally like the young kid who is who is about to learn that Mike doesn't make right like wow he's a shonen protagonist and all I can think is if only Sora could find him that kid would set him on the right path like that no just yeah. not even a problem like, just hey kid do this Ren doesn't need Ogami to be his dad. He needs Sora to be his little brother. Yeah. Like, that would just fix it. Or at the very least, like, get him out of this frustrating death loop. I absolutely adore the scene of Yuri, Mei, and Bato. It is perfect in every way, on every level. Like, it's- we're done. The show's over, you can stop here. Um, like, Bato's instinctive rage at seeing Yuri's face, this friend who betrayed him. Yuri trying to preach to Bato, who just laughs it off because he really doesn't care what anyone thinks of his decisions at this point. And then just the complete tonal shift that isn't abrupt. It, it kind of, it's, it's a very quick slide instead of a very abrupt turn, as May tries to approach this dude as if he were a normal, rational person, and then explaining Instagram to him, and then telling him he won't be popular on Instagram if he keeps being an angsty goth. And then just straight up offers to be his friend. All she has ever seen this dude be is violent and fatalistic and hateful, as he tries to murder her and everyone she cares about, regardless of whether they can defend themselves. And she still wants to reach out to him and offer her own heart to bring him into the fold. She is truly the literal, actual son, Tendo Soji, step aside, 
And I kind of wish that her offer had worked, or that he'd at least considered it for a second. Yeah, same. Especially since, like, look, the the only reason I think it didn't work is that she clearly wasn't given time to prep anything. So social media pressure and friendship are just, like, th those are her first instincts. And I have to say, like, look, those are some pretty decent first drafts for why you should not turn the Earth and everyone on it into ash. Like, because it was pretty clear she had not been given any time to prepare her notes. No, she didn't even know where they were going. Yeah, exactly. So, like, if she would have had a chance to prepare her notes, she would have brought that dude around. It's not even a question. And I love that her, like, final attempt to incentivize this is she offers to make him a team pin and Yuri, like, marches up to show off his. But he's like, yeah, look, look, see, I have this and I'm friends with her now. Now we're friends and you can get one of these and be friends too. Honestly, I again, I do wish Yuri would have had the thought to give her prep time. That would have been a killer way to finish up her presentation. Because she would have had a chance to build it up from the jump. Because, like, look, she knows what, what good rhetorical strategy looks like. She's an editor. Their job is to, like, poke holes in these things. It just, it would have worked. I, and I adore that Bato's response to all of this is, like, as May is talking to him, she just ignores him and, like, yawns. And they, there's this, like, comedic villain, or, like, this comedic music playing. And then he, like, it immediately cuts off, and he's like, wait, no, I am a serious, intimidating villain, and he just has to remove himself from the scene. The way the tone shifts back and forth, the timing, the acting, everything about that scene was high cinema. Like, I cannot get over the absolute top-tier energy these actors bring to each other. Every single one of them plays off of the others in the best possible way. And that's how scenes like this one with the comedic relief girl sidekick chatting with the emotionally broken fatalistic void man are able to land. Like every single one of these actors, especially these young ones who are just starting out, better have their careers completely explode after this show. I want every single one of them out there thriving. Because they deserve it. Because the acting and interpersonal dynamics are what are carrying this show. Oh, 100%. They're doing some amazing work, even when tasked with some moments that are, frankly, quite bizarre. Because, like, look, I love Yuri trying to bring this guy who used to be his friend back into the fold, but you got to admit, this is a very weird scene that really shouldn't work. But like you say, these kids, what these kids bring is the ability to, to engage with this with utter conviction. And that's good because Saber, like Saber doesn't feel like it's written with half as much conviction. And, like, I, I feel bad saying that in, in the good stuff part, but, like, it's true. And, like, to follow up on that, the next scene with Rintaro and Kento is is also just really well acted. Like, Rintaro is, continues to be the best boy. Mm. He knows he can't convince Kento not to do what he's doing. It has been, like, 15 episodes, and even Toma hasn't been able to get through to him. And... He knows how heavy those what-ifs weigh, 
Because that was his entire arc while Reiko was manipulating him. It was, what if Kent, what if Toma really is bad, though? But he grew up alongside Kento, and he cares about him. So he doesn't, he doesn't take that angle of telling him he's wrong or that he has to change direction, which is what Hayato does and it works, so I don't know, maybe someone should have tried that. But he tells Kento, like, okay, you protect Toma and I'll protect you. And just, I love the way that Kento, like, turns to face him with this look of absolute confusion. Like, it is absolutely great. But I just adore that after Rintaro lays all of this out, Kento sees how much he's changed and how much he has truly become the best version of himself through his love for everyone around him. And, like, honestly, I just, I love seeing Kento see it. Because Rintaro's gone through so much stuff, and it's it's nice to see him rise up like this, and for everyone to be like, dang, dude, you really grew up. And he's like, yeah, you did. Um, also, this is kind of a weird thing, but I like that Kento punching Rintaro in the gut didn't knock him out. Like, he was incapacitated for a minute or two, but, like, we can see him behind Kento as Kento is transforming, and he's winded, but he's conscious, and he's in the process of getting up. And then, as soon as Kento is in the fight, Rintaro is right behind him. Like, this- I feel like this has happened a couple of times in a couple different Rider shows, and I don't mind usually when it knocks someone out. Uh, cause generally, most of them are normal folk who have had heroic duty dropped upon them, and maybe are not quite physically prepared. And I have seen a good shot to the kidney from someone very small bring down someone very large when they are unprepared for it. Um, but Rintaro's been training his whole life. And yeah, Kento has too, so obviously he can land a solid punch. But I like that Rintaro can at least kinda take it. Because, like, look, yeah, it's a sucker punch. And he didn't see it coming, but it's not gonna take him out. And honestly, it's also not taking him, you know, not knocking him out, not only because of those strengths, the, the differences in strength or whatever, but it's another way to show us that Kento knows he's on the wrong path. He doesn't want to do what he's about to do. And even if he doesn't know that he doesn't want to, he just doesn't want to be on the path that kills him or on the path that kills Toma because that's a false choice. That's That's what this... That's how this show works. That's how this genre works. But, yeah, you, you aren't going to have the conviction necessary to knock out your friend when you are when you don't have the conviction, when you don't believe in what you're about to do. And I don't know, I, I always like that part of, of this sort of adventure series. And it was nice to see our three central boys fighting side by side again. Yeah, it was. And, you know, Toma refusing to let his best friend, maybe boyfriend, die especially die for his sake was really sweet and sad and i wish that in that fight they had gotten at least one moment of having a leg up on logos even if it was just for a second because having them all to come together again at last should have been at least a little more triumphant yeah it really should have it's a big moment but i mean that's really kind of been the big complaint with this series huh like every time they they Every time they do something that's big, 
it doesn't feel big, and every time they should make something big, they don't. Like, at least we still get those moments uh, where the three of them are standing side by side, and that, at least, kind of felt big for me. Like, it, it at the very least, it felt... it made me smile. Also, I'm so sure that some of the shots they were using there were some of the ones they, they used, like, earlier in the series or, or in the trippy bits on the way to Avalon. Which, I don't know, it's a nice way to, to show how far the kids have come. Yeah. But just, I, I wish that they had just got to win that together or that they could have felt like they were doing so. Because, yo, this is the three of them coming together. That's been the whole show so far. <sighs> but Yuri getting to show off with both, both Psycho and Kuriyami was pretty dang cool. Look... Yeah. We, we know that he had wielded them both in the past, and getting to see just how much power comes from using those two original swords together, that he could just remove Logos from the fight, like, Cosmoraptor style? That was pretty cool. Yeah. Like, look, I, I keep wondering if there's not going to be a bit where somehow he wields himself Kuriyami and the Void Blade, and that'll do something extra sick. But, yeah. but until then, like, oh, it's a lot of fun. Though I also really love that the follow-up of Yuri removing Logos from the battlefield is just Logos ripping himself out from the void. Like, that was weird and gross, and I loved it. Oh, yeah, it really was. Though it does highlight, look, Banishment, even though it is a high-level spell, it only lasts for a minute if they're not from a different plane, so... You know, you, you gotta pay attention to these sorts of things, Yuri. But but to be more serious, I just... I, well, I mean, Yuri knew. Yuri yeah. was like, that's not gonna hold him. This yeah. is just happening long enough for us to get out of here. Yep, you got ten rounds, go. Anyway, I just, I think that... While I think this part of the plot has honestly gone on a shade too long, it is nice that Logo still gets to be freaking weird in new and unexpected ways, because again... We knew he was going to get out of the void, just because, again, the superhero rule where if you don't see the body, they aren't dead. But still, like, just the visual of him just like, Rawr! just crawling out was really fun. Uh, so rolling into 38, I love that lavender and fuchsia suit on Toma. That is an amazing look for him, and I wanted to bring this up because it's honestly all I could think about for the first, like, five minutes of the episode. He looked amazing in that. He really did. And my partner pointed out to me that it's extra fun that he wore it during Pride Month, because that is basically the bisexual flag colors. And, and look, I, I realize it's being set up to echo his, you know, the new suit, but still... I didn't even think about it in relation to the new suit. I just thought, like, they just put a new outfit on him and it looks great. Like, that's a good call. I didn't even think about that. Uh, so this feels like a weird thing to bring up, but I love how just mellow Reika is around Ryoga in these two episodes. It's the first time that she hasn't been written completely weird and horny regarding her brother. And it was nice to see her getting back to that kind of focused, stoic girl boss energy as, like, the two of them just try to figure out what to do about Logos and their duty. Yeah, it's just, I, I miss her being cool and stoic. Let her be cool again, you cowards. Yeah. 
Like, the bit where they recommit to being protectors of the world and they show up to denounce Master Logos, they had some really nice energy. And it made them feel like this really serious, cohesive, competent unit that have trained together their whole lives. And I really wish the two of them had been more of that in the show, especially for Reika's sake. Yeah. Like, the more Durandal is here, I don't really mind his presence as something for Reika to structurally wrestle with on an emotional level. And I think if Ryoga had really been here the whole time and introduced at the same time as her, and they functioned basically as one person, and at some point Reika was now getting kind of a little arc about learning to be her own person apart from him, and Ryoga had to learn to accept that and maybe even want to see his little sister thrive as her own swordsman, like, that could have made for some really good characterization. And also probably would have resulted at some point, uh, just, someone would have just pulled the directors aside and just like, hey, you do know this isn't how siblings, like, relate to each other, right? Right? You do know that, right? But yeah, it would have been great, because... I, I love Reika. She's just... They just keep taking out all her good stuff. It sucks. Yeah. Um, I also really love that in that fight, Disaster was ready to jump in and fight alongside Ren. Like, I, the more that he is showing up, I'm getting more and more vibes that he actually likes this kid and wants to see him grow and thrive as someone who can fight. And the underlying reason for that might be that he will get a good fight out of him later on, but I think deep down, Disaster has maybe gotten kind of attached. At the very least, I hope that's the case. Because, like, I don't know what I want out of Disast. I just know I want more Disast. Okay, actually, I tell a lie. I do want one thing. I want for him to just shank Storius or Logos in the back at some point, preferably while they're in the middle of a big speech to the heroes about, like, how useless they are and how great their power is. And then just, like, his sword just emerges from their chest. And they're just like, but why... Hey, you know, you're boring. That kid ain't. I don't know, I just think it'd be great. I love Disast. Yeah. Um, so my criticisms of Toma lecturing Bato aside, I do love that when Toma is somehow able to wound him and he's finally, like, ready to accept his death, we see him focus on Mei. Like, he, he looks across everyone and they rack focus onto Mei in the back. Because May is presented to him as a representative of what humanity is currently. And she approached him, regardless of how big of a threat he was, as a potential friend. And in his last moments, as he was had to come to terms with, does he want to try and hold on? Or does he want to finally let go and be able to have some peace? What made him able to make the decision to let go wasn't connecting to Toma through his sword or being convinced by Yuri. It was that he saw this spark of change for the better in humanity from someone who wasn't seeking power or conflict. Just someone kind who wanted to reach out even if he wasn't in a place to accept it. Yeah, and it, it does make a nice little bow on this thing that... that... We started with 
get the earlier and also just on his whole thing and a nice way to flesh out some of the themes the show's going for it's it's really sweet also how about that super believable flame effect right oh yeah the the one that, that, that was... big old slash across him that was definitely not properly mapped to his body yeah and was at you it was somehow just floating above his clothes <laughs> <laughs> like look we don't we don't go after the special effects in the show very often. You, you, you have to excuse us when we find one that is just really funny. It was it was just very goofy to look at. Like, look, I know to an eight-year-old it's gonna be believable. Oh, yeah. And that is really all that matters. But as far as weird special effects, even within Saber, that one was pretty goofy. Also, okay... We mentioned earlier a bit, you know, that bit where, where Kento meets his dad, and while it doesn't really do what it's trying to do, I just want to say that I was really happy to see Kento's dad. Mitsuru Karahashi brings such a great energy to the scene, and just that... Pardon me. And, and just that bit where we see that he's shorter than Kento's actor, and he's just grinning and talking about how happy he is that his son's alive and is taller than him. Like, like you were saying, Sono... It, the cast makes this show work so well. Yeah, like, my whole heart melted when he said, you're taller than me now. And then he, you know, does the thing where he, he, like, messes with Kento's hair and pushes it back behind his ear. Like, it was so sweet, and it really did make me wish that they'd just let him be Caliber early in the show. Because I feel like his presence meant more to the greater narrative than Daichi's did, because... Like, he has no real connection to Toma. He's not important to Toma. Like, it just, it would have made this moment where he is himself again after spending 15 years with his mind warped by the sword that he now wants to help his son get out from under. That would have landed so much better if they just let it be Hayato instead of making it Daichi who no one has thought about since he died. Yeah, it really would have worked so much better. Honestly, I think... I, I do want to come back to that, because if, if they aren't going to have Hayato be the, the caliber, we, they have to bring back Daichi, and they haven't done that either. Yeah! It's... Guys, you, you gotta pick one. And it seems like they, they aren't willing to pick one about any of this and it's just oh what a shame anyway we're trying to be positive yeah i adore how absolutely feral daishinji got when his family legend came to life before his eyes like dude is just cackling as he's like that's it that's the sword the everything lined up here it is and I swear, if he wasn't horribly injured, he'd probably have run over and grabbed the sword out of Toma's hands to start examining it there on the battlefield. Oh, 100%. Dude knows what he's about, and what he's about is magic swords. And that right there is like a plus three sword of the elements. Toma, just let Daishinji examine the sword. You coward. And look, if he examines the sword by kissing it, you just... Don't question his you, methods. You just let him. You just let him have that one. Don't question his methods. He's he is a professional. Um, and I also really liked that Toma 
manifested these giant versions of all of the people he cares about and or believes in to get rid of the big sky books across the globe. Because I don't think he cares about Rekha and Durandal, but he at least believes in them. Mm. Um, and how, you know, in fighting the big Solomon Arthurs, he manifests all of their powers in different ways. Um, it was some big cosmic states energy where even though this is Toma's final form, he wields it as a symbol of all of the people who have stood with him to make a better world. Which, like, look, I, I can poke holes in all sorts of things in this show all day, but I love that thing. I love that bit. Because, of course, when he pulls something from the stars, it's going to contain physical embodiments of the most powerful force in the universe, which as we all know from Common Rider Forza, is friendship. And the power of friendship is enough to, yeah, you can wreck all those books, not even a problem. It's friendship. You, you, No matter how many weird Solomon Arthurs you throw at him, sorry man, no one likes you. And then, just I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll into the next thing, because while everyone's celebrating, we get to see Disaster's hand reaching in to take the sword, because the second most powerful force in the universe is being a scheming scumbag. And once more, we are left to wonder, what is Disast's deal? I literally, like, as his hand came in, I just shouted, heck yes! Oh yeah. Like, just him reaching in and grabbing the Void Sword is just the hypest way that this show has ever ended an episode. Oh, Absolutely. Because, look, he's the one guy in the show whose constant chaos gremlin energy can feel both completely real, but also like a costume that he puts on. So him collecting these big magic swords seems like it could go so many ways. Because, again, look, as I mentioned earlier, him and and the the phoenix suit, him and Bato, rather, they, they feel like they're going they're trying to fill the same narrative roles and now we're kind of putting them together so now we can have the best suit in the show and the second best suit in the show like on a single character and look i'm pretty hyped for that <laughs> but also i it it just feels in, important to point out that his legendary beast is fenrir you know the wolf of world's end and his story is one where one brother kills the other brother to take the dead brother's good fortune for himself. And I don't know what's up with the Japanese tiger beetle, but I'm willing to bet it's not a nice thing. So just giving this dude the sword of void and the power to become a cool phoenix beast does not sound like it's got good intentions behind it, and I am so hyped to see what it is. Because look, his, his plotting is not plotting plotting he's an opportunistic schemer and honestly that's a much better th like the people writing this show should just have all the villains be opportunistic schemers they like it's not that they've got big grand chess master plans they're just awful little gremlins and when they get a chance they take it <laughs> that said though an eternally renewing firebird and a world-ending wolf in a single being Sounds like the kind of volatile and dangerous I am so hyped to see, just in whatever they whatever disaster ends up doing. Oh yes, because 
Disaster has always had so much potential, and giving him one of the original sacred holy swords just multiplies that by a ton. And part of me wants to see him kind of be like, look, I'm not gonna be a hero, but if this loser kills everyone, then I've got no one to fight. And become this kind of weird anti-hero common Rider who doesn't let the villains try and disrupt normal people's lives, because that takes time away from him getting to fight Ren for fun. Which, like, look, I'd take it. Dude just wants a good fight, and now that he's got the Phoenix Sword, he can fight to the death. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And, like... There... Oh, go on. There's just a level in which I was always really disappointed in the way they finished off Phoenix in Kamen Rider Wizard. Yeah. Because Phoenix's whole thing was every time he dies, he comes back stronger. And they kick him into the sun where he's dying repeatedly. And I'm like, eventually he's got to get strong enough where the sun doesn't affect him anymore. So when is when does he come back from that? And I, I know I've talked about what I wanted out of that and that being like the, the Beast Returns movie. But I feel like here, where Disaster is picking this up and he's already this kind of volatile creature who just wants to fight. Because that's all Phoenix wanted. He didn't want the, the whole world-ending plan that the other phantoms were going for. He's just like... I just want to keep beating stuff up and get stronger. And I just, I feel like disaster is kind of an extension of that in a way where I might get a satisfying ending this time. Boy, I really hope so. Especially since, like, on top of all that, I would, I very much just want him to, to have the thing of, like, once he's the super powerful guy, he's just, well, yeah, I'm not going to let you end the world. Why not? You're going to kill everyone. No, I'm not. <laughs> To kill no, a lot of people, I just sure. want to. I just want to fight that guy. I don't even want to kill that guy because that means I can't fight him again. Yeah, because he, here's the thing: I paid attention and I noticed that if you just spend a whole bunch of time in the void, just wishing things had gone a different way, uh, you turn into kind of a boring dude. I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go the way Bato did. I'm just gonna go do my thing. Thank. Ah, <sighs> oh, disaster. But speaking of uh, the two best suits in the show, let's get to our new suit roundup and and talk about what we think about Common Rider Cross Saber X Ross Saber. Is it just Cross? I, I believe it's Cross. Yeah. Um, kind of in the way that in uh, Build he was Cross Dragon, and they spelled that weirdly. Yeah. I don't remember how they spelled it, but I know they spelled it weirdly. I think it might have been just like X dash Ross again. Uh, hold on. Let me. Not to derail us, but I, I just now I'm wondering. We are how, like that, yeah. How? Okay, he was he was Common Rider Cross, but it was Cross dash Z for oh, no right, reason. That was when it was because I kept saying, okay, it's Cross, but it's also Claws. So. Yeah. Yeah, because it's Kurozu. Where where sticking the 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 Z on the end gives gives that that zu, and that also makes it claws. But it doesn't really work when you spell it in English. Like again here, because again, um, 
in the way that they kind of use the letter X in things and you see it everywhere is uh, as it is said cross um, for like collaborations um, such as um, I don't know like the the Hello Kitty Fies stuff would be Hello Kitty cross Common Rider Fies. And it, there would, it would be Hello Kitty, and then an X, and then the Common Rider Fies logo. So it, it, it's it's a weird thing when they romanize it, but it's just a very stylized way of writing cross, I guess. Um, and I know that this is just the flame dragon suit repainted. Yeah. But it's the flame dragon suit repainted to a galaxy motif with a lot of metallic paint and glitter. And if y'all have listened to any of us covering other shows and learned one thing about my taste in final forms, or forms in general, is that if you cover them in glitter, I am completely on board. I don't care what it looks like. I can't really say much more than that because there is no real suit construction, but it, it's a cool repaint of Flame Dragon, and I do kind of like the the Rewa trend we're setting of having the final form being an iteration of the base form instead of something kind of bigger and grander. Yeah, I really hope Like, we they stick get to big that. and grand in the middle and then scale back. I think that is a cool and interesting trend we're setting for Rewa. Yeah. And look, it's hard to go wrong with the space theme, you know, Uchuki Taha and all that, because... Yeah. Again, what's the most powerful force in the universe? Friendship. Yeah. Um, though I do a thing... The only bit of real new construction comes in the form of the weapon. Yeah. Um, which I don't know what it's called. If it's not also called the cross saber, that's... I feel like that's a little bit of a missed opportunity. But it, it is a longer sword than... Uh, Rekka, Nagare, and Ikazuchi, which are all the same sword with a different uh, faceplate on the guard. Um, and it sticks out of the other end of the belt. When it's in the belt, it actually goes all the way through and yeah. sticks out the other side, which the other three do not. And something about that makes it feel, if not less bulky than at least more balanced and it's a weird detail that has made the belt kind of finally work for me you're not alone in this because uh, i i've i don't know every time i looked at him just like yeah actually yeah that's pretty good i'm just happy they found a way to make the belt work a little better anything to improve the lines on things really because like oof it's not again yeah, well, don't love the suit but dang that's one of the the yeah, rather I don't like I don't love the the saber suits in general but like that's a really good way to do it yeah but I mean like having like removing that weird color blocking from flame dragon and having it just be this very consistent palette it makes me like that suit more yeah no it, it does a really good job of just improving the suit just through the colors man I love it so much but yeah, I think that's, unless we have any other final thoughts, I think that's it for these episodes of Saber. Uh, no. No, that's it. Well, um, yeah, I guess that's it for us. So for all of us here at the Uncommon Cast RX and the rest of the TOR Network, I'm Aleph. And I'm Sun. And don't get kicked by a horse and die. <laughs>